Good day, everyone, and welcome to a Biblical Frame, where we are looking at current events from a biblical and theological perspective. My name is Ed Gerber, and I'm glad to be your host today. And I am here with a group of people who are going to introduce themselves. Ivan De Silva, Trinity Western University. Jan Zimmerman, Regent College. Douglas Farrow, McGill University. Hi, I'm Steve Pellick. I'm a professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia, and I'm also the president of Conexus Bioinformatics Corporation, which has actually been undertaking a clinical trial to look at the extent of natural immunity in our population for the last two years. And I'm also um, the vice president and the co-chair of the Scientific and Medical um, Advisory Committee of the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. Thank you. It's great to have you here today. Yeah, so today, uh, let me frame things a little bit before we start drawing on our um, expert, Dr. Pellick, here. So after more than two years of the pandemic hype, anyone who cares to check readily available statistics on COVID infections, recoveries, recoveries and deaths can quickly find out that SARS-CoV-2 is not the deadly killer virus it was portrayed to be, and that none of the exaggerated and misplaced measures like lockdowns, masking, or social distancing were appropriate for this kind of a disease. Now, there are three key groups of society whose professions bear the inherent responsibility of responding critically and thoughtfully to how government COVID policies have affected human lives. And those three sectors are, one, the medical establishment, the academy with its researchers, and then thirdly, church, church leaders. And in my view, all three have failed spectacularly in their response to the senseless and dehumanizing COVID measures that we've all experienced in Canada. Now, in our podcast, we have focused mainly, in the last podcast, we've focused on the failure of Christian and Christian leaders in the church to protect especially its people from the totalitarian overreach of the state. Church leaders have failed in two ways. The first is they conceded the government authority over the church, which the state simply does not possess. The only one who decides who attends church and how the church worships is God. The sign of entry into the church is baptism in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit, not a vaccine passport. When and how to assemble and how to conduct the liturgy is for the church to determine, not for the government. It simply does not have that authority. No government official or his ecclesial proxy has either a role or any authority to tell Christians whether or in what manner they gather for worship. So the church has unlearned the truth that Christ is Lord over body and soul, over church and state. And Doug Farrow, who's joining us today, has pointed this out in his excellent Substack blogs that I highly recommend for you to consult, that the church presently no longer gives to God what is God's, but renders all authority to Caesar. With few exceptions, the church in Canada is a puppet of the state. So that's the first failure. And the second failure of the church was to allow the abuse of its cardinal virtue of charity, of neighborly love. How often have we not heard the phrase from Christian leaders, vaccination is an act of neighborly love, or stay home, self-isolate, out of neighborly love. Show your love for each other by doing the right thing. Except that it wasn't the right thing. Even the public knows by now what many critical corona experts had voiced over, well over a year ago. The vaccines don't work against transmitting the virus. The lockdowns caused more harm than good. 
and so on. In short, the church allowed its cardinal virtue of charity, of love of neighbor, to be divorced from truth and support a lie. Christians have forgotten how to worship God, not just, not just in spirit, but in truth. So my question is, has the church realized its failure to protect Christians from the illegitimate overreach of the state? Have church leaders acknowledged the abuse of neighborly love for senseless vaccine mandates, masking and social isolation, for measures that have hurt many, many people and continue to injure people even now? And I won't name names here, but very prominent church leaders have in many YouTube clips and interviews and so on explicitly made this connection between neighborly love and getting the vaccine and doing the right thing and so on. Have church leaders even recognized the extent to which government and media channels have spread misinformation about COVID? I would say that no, by large they have not. And that is why I'm afraid for what we may face in the coming months, in the coming fall. Our Canadian health bureaucrats, the so-called top doctors, are already ramping up their booster campaign language and are warning that the coming flu season will require new lockdowns and more retuned vaccines, possibly for years to come. So if all this comes back in the fall, in my view, the church will have to resist. But resistance requires knowledge of the truth. And that's the reason for today's podcast. So my hope is, or our hope is, that knowing the truth about corona, about vaccines, about lockdowns, and so on, will equip Christians and church leaders to refuse any further unjust and hurtful health measures by an overreaching state. And for this reason, we have dedicated today's podcast to exploding some corona myths, at least, with the help of, of Dr. Pellick, an expert who has spent a lot of time researching SARS-CoV-2. He's already introduced himself. I just still want to uh, give him a chance to talk just a little bit how he got into the corona research um, that he has done, and he has spoken to many at many venues about this. So if you could just give us a brief word about that, and then we'll start asking you some questions. Sure. Thank you, Jen. Well, we have technology at Connexus Bioinformatics that allows us to actually make antibodies in animals, and one of the ways that we do it is we make pieces of the original um, target proteins that we're interested in. So the virus, SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19, has 28 separate proteins. And we can actually create those as pieces. When the human, when the genome became available for SARS-CoV-2 in January of 2020, we had the complete instructions to make all the proteins. And so we thought, well, we were in a position to recreate the entire virus's structure with these 28 proteins in about 5,000 individual pieces. And the idea here was if we took blood from people who've had COVID-19, successfully recovered, which means that those antibodies were, were good and effective, then we could see, well, which of those little pieces was it that actually elicited the strong antibody response? And so what we found was that in fact, there's hundreds of different parts of the virus proteins that people make antibodies against. And what happens is when you produce these antibodies, they lock on to the target virus and they, they flag it for the rest of the immune system to take it out. So the idea was, well, maybe these pieces could be themselves injected into people and could be the basis of a vaccine. So that's how we came into that 
problem originally about two and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, in your findings, did you find that uh, many people already had antibodies? Yes, there was a study that was published in peer-reviewed journal for the American uh, Society for Clinical Investigators, JCI Insights. And this was done in collaboration with the BC Women's and Children's Hospital, uh, in particular uh, Dr. Pascal uh, Lavois' group. And they had tested, with, as, and we assisted, they had a different screen from what we had developed, but we tried their screen and our screen, and 276 different um, healthy adults were tested in May of 2020, and we found that 90% of them had antibodies that could clearly recognize different parts of the SARS-CoV-2 virus proteins. So let me ask you this question then. For The initial message was, and I know this is a sort of a primitive question really, but I think it's important for church folks to, to hear this. So the initial message was this is a new virus against which we have no antibodies, no immunity, uh, wherefore we need to be terribly afraid, and in the end only a vaccine can save us. So what do you say to that interpretation? I mean, that's obviously not uh, tenable. Yeah. I think many of the health officials were not sure what to expect with this virus. They were talking about as many as five or six people out of a hundred that would be infected would likely die. And these are the numbers that were batted around. It was being compared to the influenza 1918 flu. And it was nothing like that. In, in fact, even the original Wuhan strain, we think that probably the lethality is maybe three out of a thousand. And so at least 10 times lower, maybe 20 times lower. And that was um, really including all the people that had um, comorbidities, that were elderly, all the people that had uh, factors that would make them at higher risk. So even when you encompass those people in the overall numbers, now with Omicron, that's actually much, much uh, weaker in terms of its lethality. We're probably less than one in a thousand people that are infected with Omicron will actually die. And then again, that includes the people at high risk. Right. So it's fair to say we now know for sure, and we could have known this a while back, this is not the killer virus. Right. And, and to put it in context, um, influenza, typical strain of influenza that goes around seasonally, will have a lethality of around three in a thousand. Okay. So this is actually less lethal than the typical influenza. And yet we had an initial panic, and even later, uh, these dreadful measures of lockdowns, uh, of masking, um, and so on, and rigid social distancing, we also know from studies that none of these really made a great difference. Like we had countries that didn't engage these measures and did you know, similar or right. certainly not worse than countries that did. Can you speak to that? Oh, yes. Well, I mean, early on we saw a study that <clears throat> was done with, I think it was around 2,947 different um, counties in the United States, and there was 68 countries around the world, and they examined the ratio of vaccination versus the number of cases of COVID-19. And what they found was no correlation whatsoever, except in those countries that vaccinated the most, there was a positive correlation. The more vaccination that was undertaken, the higher the rates of COVID cases. Hmm. <laughs> so, you know, one begins to shake one's head. Um, yeah. about the continued, you know, overreaction to these things, which has to do a lot with 
I think with the uh, suppression of information, um, you know, part of me not, doesn't want to go willingly to a place where I want to say there was willful suppression of information. Um, uh, so another question along those lines is, is much discussion in alternative media about the WHO's suppression of prophylactic and antiviral treatments for COVID, right, that way around. Yes, you're referring to like ivermectin and yeah. fluvoxamine and yeah. hydroxychloroquine, yes. Yes, and, and actually uh, one of them, for example, was the um, fluvoxamine, which has since been shown to be clinically effective in a Canadian double-bind trial and now is being given to people. Uh, it has effectiveness in about 30% of cases. But um, hydroxychloroquine, this seems to be actually quite effective too, but it was torpedoed by a scientific study that was later actually um, revoked from the literature because it was full of problems. It was uh, probably even fake. Um, then we have hydrox well, ivermectin, which there's been well over 100 studies, of which the vast majority of them show a positive effect. Um, in Canada, we don't recognize it with Health Canada because it was a clinical trial, the TOGETHER trial, that was con primarily conducted in Brazil, but it actually w involved Canadian researchers uh, that spearheaded the trial. And now we're finding six months after um, they announced the trial results that ivermectin didn't work, we finally got to see in the journal what they actually did and now that's actually caused quite an uproar. There's, there's actually organizations in both the United States and, and Canada that have highlighted the deficiencies in that trial. And we're trying to see that, that that paper is actually revoked as well because it's giving a false sense of uh, how ivermectin performed. Uh, there's been such an overwhelming analysis that's been done in so many countries, meta-analysis that have combined the data. And it, it looks, it really does look like it's effective. But one of the reasons why we think there might have been a, a hesitancy to adopt it was because we would not have been able in the United States to have emergency use authorization granted to any of the vaccines had there been a medication that could have been used effectively against uh, COVID-19. So a lot of people think that that's what was behind the uh, the the campaign to discredit what turns out to be a drug that's been on the market for 40 years. Uh, billions of people have been treated with it. It's considered one of the most safest drugs on the planet by the World Health Organization. <laughs> Nobel Prizes have been given for it. And it's, um, again, there's lots of evidence to show that it seems to be effective for uh, COVID-19. It's originally used to treat parasites. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for six cents a day, you can have a child in Africa um, be able to drink the water. That's what our donations do uh, when we're, we're giving to some of these organizations overseas. Uh, but you can't get it in Canada. And, uh, yeah, it's even over, over the counter in countries like Brazil, which is one of the reasons why that Brazil wasn't the best place to test it, because a lot of the population is taking it regularly anyways. So what's the motive there? Why, why would they want to discredit a very well-known drug, great safety record, and instead push the vaccines on the Canadian public? Well, not to mention American public and European public and 
Yeah, I think it's financial. I mean, the fact of the matter is uh, Ivermectin was produced by Merck, and Merck had a compound underway, an inhibitor of one of the proteins that's in the virus, a protease, and they were developing it, as was Pfizer, uh, same target protein, and that's what Paxlovid is actually targeting, and that's now introduced, again, with emergency use authorization in the U.S. and interim order in Canada, they would not be able to introduce these uh, drugs if they didn't actually have an existing drug that would do the, pretty much the same thing. Yeah, well, we've talked about this before, right? I mean, we've, we've talked about the, the possible corruption of government and of pharma that used to be standard topics, at least among, you know, left Marxist critics of capitalism and so on, that have completely disappeared during the... Yeah, well, this is the thing is, um, it would be, if Pfizer and Merck are trying to develop their own compounds, they're not going to be supporting a compound that's off-patent, that's cheap to produce, that uh, has been widely used. There's no profit in that. Yes, the question is, of course, why should there be profit in a pandemic? Okay, exactly. but what, I'm, what confuses me is the collusion between the government and pharma, big pharma. Why would the governments be motivated to help pharma get wealthy? Well, I can answer a few questions on that. And it's got a lot to do with conflict of interest. I mean, it's very interesting for me as a scientist in university, we have to be very careful about you know, stating our connections with potential conflict of interest, not just actual, but perceived and, and, and possible, mm -hmm. even if you haven't done anything. But by the same token, what we're seeing is that if you look at, at, say, Health Canada, for example, about 90% of the cost of approving a drug is actually borne by the manufacturer of the drug. So, the very, so there's an incentive to actually be favorable to the, the customer. The customer, in this case, is actually the pharmaceutical company. And so there's a very extensive lobbying that's being done and I think there's been a bit of a transition in Health Canada that many of the people that uh, were originally in that organization, they recognize that their role is to protect the public, whereas now when you've got 90% of your coverage for, for being employed is actually covered by the manufacturer, that's just, even if, even if there wasn't an actual conflict of interest, the perceived conflict of interest there is just overwhelming. But you have uh, the the um, politicians, that they're being lobbied by these um, pharmaceutical companies. And you have situations where the mainstream media, most extensive advertising is now doing, done by big pharma. So they feel the pressure, especially in radio stations, TV stations, where revenues have been declining because you have a, a market where you have so many different outlets that are competing for that you know, revenue. It, it's it's like a perfect storm that's kind of evolved that just really let this basically transpire where we have the public being getting highly censored information, the yeah. government really strongly promoting these vaccines because it's in the best interests of obviously the pharmaceutical companies, um, and they may think it's in the best interests of the public, but in fact that's not really borne by the scientific data. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about this um I hope extensively a little later on. Um, before that, I want to touch on another COVID elephant in the room, which is natural immunity. 
Um, so people still seem to hold on to the myth that you know there is no natural immunity, that, that therefore we need the vaccines. Um, we even hear our government representatives and health officials say things like, well, you know, now that we know the vaccines are waning quickly, you need to get your boosters to get your immunity up in order to cope yes. with it. So, Stephen, can you just explain, you know, how natural immunity works? It Does it work for the coronavirus? And how how are we supposed to think about this in terms of the long term, you know, the, the next year or down the road. Sure, just, well, just before you start, yeah. do you mean by that <coughs> natural immunity, do you mean like herd immunity? Is that what yeah, you I mean? Are these two that. different things? Sorry, it's a good question. Because a lot of people think that natural immunity means that, okay, if I've got natural immunity, I'll never get infected yeah, again yeah. and I won't get sick. But, but actually, immunity comes at various levels. Uh, you can have what we call sterilizing immunity, where in, in some of these vaccines do work that way, that once you've been exposed... You never will develop it again because the pathogen doesn't usually mutate that much. So your body is recognizing the original pathogen or a portion of it as what happens with many of the vaccines. But no, I think the reality is, especially with coronaviruses, we all know that the common cold can be caused by coronaviruses and you can get the common cold again multiple times in your life. But it's not that dangerous. It's not going to put you in the hospital and potentially kill you. Uh, in very rare cases would that happen. And, and that's sort of, we have to recognize that when we're talking about immunity, what we're really worried about, and even I think the public health officials have, have started to move this direction, they don't care about case counts anymore. Mm-hmm. What they care about is how many people are ending up in hospital and emergency care units and dying. And that's where we really should be focused on these Right. You know, and that's where they should have started focusing on. That's right. <laughs> yeah. oh. But, but um, you know, you were, you were mentioning earlier about, um, well, these vaccines, well, with the natural immunity, you know, what does that mean in the context of, let's say, COVID-19 uh, with the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes it? And, well, when you have natural immunity, it's, it's against the whole virus, Remember, I mentioned there's 28 different proteins, mm-hmm. not just one. The vaccines that people are getting is against the spike protein uniquely. And so it's a very restricted response. Uh, secondly, we know with natural immunity, what will happen after you first encounter the pathogen, you'll make antibodies for the first time. And if you're no longer exposed to it for a while, your antibody levels will decline. And, and you want that because you're, the cells that produce the antibodies, we call them B cells or B lymphocytes, if they were all active at all times, spitting out basically all these antibodies like artiner, artillery into your circulation, your blood would be so thick it, would, it couldn't flow. So it's very important that you're only activating these B cells to produce the antibodies against a particular pathogen when you need it. So the antibody levels will decline, but in the case of natural immunity, what we see is those B cells don't die. They actually go into hibernation. Uh, and so this, this uh, state, we call the memory B cells or plasma cells, um, depending on where they're located. And as soon as you re-encounter the pathogen, then they, they just start producing more antibody again very rapidly before you are likely to even feel getting sick. And I guess the third thing is, in the case of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, 
is that this is a respiratory virus. You, know, you breathe it in through your nose and in your mouth, and it gets eventually into your lungs. And so at that site of entry is where you mount the immune response. And there's three or four different types of antibodies. And in the ones that are secreted into your lungs and airway spaces, these are IgA and IgM antibodies. And they're ideal for locking on to the virus, in this case, and then other cells, macrophages that are in your lungs and that, they'll eat it up. In the case of the vaccines, we don't establish the immune memory. This is why repeated dosing is required, and we now know that even four doses isn't enough to establish immune memory. However, in the case of the natural infection, the immune memory, we've now tested people even two and a half years later, and they still have antibodies. Probably because we're in the midst of the pandemic, and the virus is constantly in our environment, mm -hmm. and it gives us natural boosters. Mm -hmm. So we see this elevated levels uh, in people. It will come down a little bit, but it's actually enough there to protect most people. Now, when you're injected in your arm with the vaccine, you're actually producing IgG antibodies. These are great antibodies. They last 21 days. They travel through your body, but there are very low concentrations in your upper lungs and airway spaces. So the, the very antibodies that you need in the place where you want them, the vaccines don't do that. Uh, traditionally, they've all been injected in the arm. Maybe if there was some that was an aerosol, that might be working more effectively, but that's not the way it is right now. Interesting. Yeah. So can I quickly ask a question here? So I got the vaccine, mm -hmm. uh, then I got the second dose, along with my wife and four daughters, mm -hmm. despite hesitations. And I'm wondering, one of the questions that I've always wanted to ask somebody, and I've listened to a lot, but it never gets asked, Will the vaccine and its effects depart from our bodies so that we can also get a natural immune response? Or is this thing still living in doing things that are terrifying? Because well, I hear stories about that. Right. I mean, the fact of the matter is that these vaccines do work initially. It just doesn't last. Right. So what that's done is you have a population of B cells that have been educated and selected, and they produce this kind of production of antibodies for a while, and the boosting helps. But without the establishment of the immune memory, this is the problem. And the scientific data now is showing, and contrary to the you know, people who've had natural immunity, and then they're told, well, you better go and get vaccinated now, you know, just to boost it some more. Well, as I've alluded, you don't need to boost it anymore because you'll get that naturally in the environment. But what we're actually seeing is that the vaccination is actually reducing the natural immunity you have. And there was a study that came out just recently where it was actually with Moderna's vaccine. It's an RNA vaccine. And so what happened was when you give a person who's already been vaccinated now the Moderna vaccine, and I'm sure this is true for the Pfizer vaccine. Yeah, the Pfizer ones, vaccine, right? yeah. And so what happens is you make antibodies now against, as I mentioned earlier, with the uh, in natural infection against all the proteins. So one of the other proteins they track is the nucleocapsid protein. And so if you, in fact, this is the way most people uh, are trying to determine whether or not you've had natural immunity, because you can't tell 
with a spike protein because you've been vaccinated for it. But you're not being vaccinated for the nucleocapsid protein. So if you have nucleocapsid protein antibodies, it means that you've been naturally infected. So here's the problem. People who have not been vaccinated that now get a natural infection, 97% of those people in that study had antibodies against the nucleocapsid protein. However, people who have been pre-vaccinated that then got COVID-19, only 40% of them had antibodies against the nucleocapsid protein. And so even the spike protein levels themselves seem to come down. So there, there appears to be, a, we don't know the exact explanation. Uh, you might be uh, curious to hear that natu- what we call original antigenic sin mm-hmm. might be one of the factors where if you've been given an inferior type of uh, immunization, like with just against the spike protein, the body seems, the immune system seems to recognize the original infection and a very restricted infection. And then what happens is you get a new variant later, and instead of boosting antibodies that would recognize, let's say, Omicron, you're actually still going back and producing the antibodies that recognize the original Wuhan strain. Now, generally, that's not... They're 97% identical, so that's not so big a deal. But if those antibodies aren't that great to begin with, you're just not generating newer antibodies and you're not establishing the immune memory. So it actually looks like you, believe it or not, um, and there's a lot of data from the United Kingdom, from Scotland, from Canada, that in fact, the more you vaccinate, the more likely you will get COVID-19. Right. Okay, so I've had two, and this I think this is just highly practical for a lot of listeners, because a lot of us did go, trusted, let's just go, certainly this is trustworthy, how bad can it be? Um, my daughter did faint the morning after she got it, she passed out, standing up, clunk, straight onto the floor, just out, and there was other weird things that we had going on, but um, it's been about a year since I had my second, is it out of my system? The actual um, vaccine, we thought was out of your system. We now know that's not necessarily true. And the idea is that when you get these vaccines that are the RNA vaccines, for example, the RNA is kind of like the genetic information instructions to make the protein itself, the spike protein that's found on the surface of the virus. And you're using your own body cells to manufacture that protein by taking that RNA and translating it into a protein. And normally, you make proteins from your genes. Mm -hmm. And the genes are the DNA in your chromosomes. And then the RNA is just an intermediate copy to leave the nucleus of cells where the chromosomes are located and get into what we call the cytoplasm, where you actually make the proteins. So what ends up happening is it's DNA to RNA to protein. What we've learned more recently in multiple studies is that that RNA that comes in with the vaccine can be translated backwards oh, great. into DNA. And that DNA, and this has been seen in liver cells, which is the second most likely place that the vaccine travels to, mm. it can actually move uh, into the nucleus. And now from that DNA, you can keep generating copies of the RNA so that even though the RNA doesn't last very long, the DNA is very stable. So you just keep for months producing spike protein now on the surface of whatever cells it was that 
you know, was took in basically that RNA. Because the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine with the RNA vaccines, they don't have any targeting associated with them. They'll fuse with these lipid nanoparticles with any cells that they come close to. So the major ones have been obviously the, the, the muscle, right, where you inject, mm-hmm. and then the liver, the spleen, the um, adrenal glands, which controls hormones, and the ovaries. Yeah, so that's of some concern. So we do know that levels of the uh, protein are, are evident in people even several months after they've been vaccinated. And it, it could be potentially permanent in some cases. And, and it could be making, like I'm becoming Optimus Prime. There's transformation happening inside. <laughs> well, but it's a very <laughs> tiny one. I mean, I mean <laughs> okay, good. you have about 20,000 different Optimus genes. Optimus Prime wouldn't be bad, let's Some be honest. Prime. <laughs> yeah, you have 20,000 different genes, and you're just adding you know, one extra gene there. Um, but the problem is your body has, has adapted or evolved so that it's optimally performing with all these different proteins working together. Now you're throwing a foreign protein into that mix, and it's got interactions that are, at this point, unpredictable. It, it, just looking down the road, could there be an antidote? Like, so that if this is continuing to produce spike proteins in my body, could I take something? Is it theoretically possible that we could take something to eliminate the bad effects? It's theoretically possible, but it's unlikely. Um, And the reason being that this would be like CRISPR technology. And at this point, the only CRISPR technology you can do is really with embryos, you know, early in development. Uh, A whole human person that's already formed to have very selective knock out of a gene the way you want that that's probably a decade or two yet away okay and okay so and sorry but people who now reproduce they both had the vaccines Mm -hmm. a man and a woman they've been double jabbed triple jabbed quadruple jabbed they have a baby Mm -hmm. is anything passed on to the child now no i think that's uh, unlikely i'd be more concerned that whether they could have a child um because if the ovaries are in fact one of the target organs for the lipid nanoparticles to go to, it's likely that they would elicit an immune response that would attack the ovaries and actually damage them so that they have less oocytes. This is a step before conversion to an egg. And so when a a baby girl is born, she has all the oocytes she's going to have for the rest of her life. They're already there. And when they get past puberty and they start to have periods... You know, typically about 400 periods, and then you run out of oocytes or eggs. And like with a, a period, one, sometimes two, oocytes are selected to be fertilizable. And, and the, you have maybe about ten to 20,000 oocytes when you start, but they, they die naturally. And so you run out of oocytes. Now, if a woman is putting off having her children, then what will happen is that window if she has less oocytes to start with, will in fact be shorter and shorter. So by the time they want to have children, they may not be able to. Oh, I see. So, I mean, it's abundantly clear that this is not a normal vaccine. Like, I wanted to just go back to that. Don't think, you know, I'm surprised. Like, I read a lot of the literature. I mean, as a humanities prof, I'm not claiming I understand everything. But I certainly understood the difference between a traditional vaccine and, and right. these, these new mRNA uh, and other vaccines. But I don't think many people really get that. I think a lot of people think, well, it's a vaccine. Like, what's the big deal? Let's get it. So could you just 
quickly explain the difference? Yes, ab- absolutely. Oh. You're, absolutely, you're absolutely correct. These are unlike any other vaccines. They, um, and the AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson vaccines, these are delivered by a virus, adenovirus, as a, as a, as a packaging uh, agent to deliver the DNA right. of, the, of the spike pre- protein. And so then from that DNA, you're making more RNA copies, and that's why you get higher doses of the spike protein. But this concept of using these, either the lipid nanoparticles or the virus, to deliver the RNA that will enter into your own cells and manufacture a protein that will be expressed on the surface of your own cells that your own immune system will recognize as foreign and attack those cells, and by doing so, elicit an immune response that will lead to the production of antibodies and T-cells. This has never really been done before with maybe one exception I can think of, and that's for an Ebola virus. And that was around 2020, and with the Ebola virus, it's actually never been shown to work in humans because nobody wants to do the experiment to expose humans to the Ebola virus. So they've done it with animal models, and it works about 50% of the time in the animal models. What we do know is that there seem, it seems to pass the safety you know, um, in terms of experiments testing for safety, but then it's, those experiments for safety are no better, in fact, probably worse than what we've done with the uh, COVID-19 vaccines. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, I mean, as far as I know, we don't have any long-term studies on, you know, uh, toxicology or things like that for this vaccine either. I think people would be shocked to to understand that really from the start of production of these vaccines to, 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 to begin to create them to see what would work. And there's extensive manipulations of the genetic sequence itself, but... Really, within nine months, these were now being given generally to people after very limited uh, phase three clinical trials that are still ongoing till about, uh, I don't know if it's May or July, I've seen both, 2023. Okay, so these are still in phase three human trials, especially for long-term safety. The efficacy, it's clear that that it's short-term. I mean, this is the ideal situation for uh, big pharma with the vaccine manufacturers where you have a a product that has no liability, basically. Uh, Vaccines are different from drugs in this respect. You have a situation where the market is everybody in the world and they're going to be continually reboosted. So this is a big, big win. I mean, if, if someone understood the size of this market, with vaccines relative to the size of the market for all the drugs, this is a way bigger market. Yeah, yeah. And it seems to me that the the push is to um, to sort of switch everything over to these kind of modern vaccines. Yes, right? and that's this is concerns me because Jens. Uh, I mean, you it, it's one thing whether these are even effective vaccines in the long run, but. The other is, is there safety issues? And there clearly is safety issues. We can talk about that. Mm-hmm, sure. um, but, but, I mean, we're now talking about adopting this technology where it's cheaper and faster to produce these kind of products uh, for influenza, for all the other vaccines that we were traditionally using in the past, 
which would normally be things like heat-treated and an activated virus or an attenuated form of the virus is very weak, unlikely to make you sick, but could elicit a good immune response. So we're, we're moving away from these very well-tested vaccines with decades of experience, that how effective and safe they are, to now this whole new technology. Is this also why they appear to have changed the definition of a vaccine, if I'm <clears throat> Yeah, that's mistaken, a good point. From... They did. Because in reality, these are genetic vaccines. So they, they work completely different from any previous vaccines. And in fact, what they've done is they've loosened the definition of a vaccine. So it's an agent that boosts the immune system. Mm -hmm. So under that definition, even vitamin D3 is a vaccine. So, or okay. yogurt, you know, because you can boost your immune system with, with uh, what's in yogurt. So they they brought it, and I was thinking that, well, what's the advantage of this? I mean, one, to make it more palatable to the general public, um, but the other is that the liabilities associated by having a vaccine status is much less to the manufacturer. Curtis and I um, were at a church. The church is wildly divided. Most people are being taught by what's going on in the mainline media. And it was fractious. Mm -hmm. We lost friendships because we were trying to talk in very layman's terms about these sorts of things and some cautions and otherwise. Mm -hmm. Did you have the same kind of thing in the scientific community where you were trying to flag and say, hold on a second here and have civil conversations with people? It seemed very difficult to have civil conversations. It, it yeah. just became a shouting match. It's, it's difficult because I think for a lot of my colleagues, I think we all mean to do well. We want to be effective and we want to try to, to contribute to the safeguard of society. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Many of my pediatrician colleagues early on in the pandemic when we started you know, just having the vaccines, they all thought at that point we should never vaccinate children because they were at such low risk. I mean, the, the chances of a child ending up in a hospital is like 1 in 100,000. It was just so low. Uh, I think in British Columbia, we've had, I, I believe the last statistics that I saw was maybe two deaths out of 20, under 28 years of age during the whole pandemic, two two-year-olds with leukemia. So, I mean, the risk is extremely low. Most children are asymptomatic. They, have, they don't get sick. And they're very low in transmissibility. And this was shown, again, by the BC Women's and Children's Hospital with a study of high school kids and, children, uh, and elementary school. It's the Vancouver school system. So, I mean, the evidence is, doesn't justify it. And yet, now, many of those colleagues, they, they don't seem to say anything about the vaccination of children. I heard kids are at greater danger from drowning in the bathtub. That's correct. Yeah. I, it makes me angry. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the elements that, you know, we keep coming back to is, I don't know where you want to put this in your register of categories. Um, it seems to me, you know, pharma profits, um, I, we, the, the, the newspeak word is misinformation, but I mean, it seems to me downright lies. I mean, I've just recently heard um, Rochelle Walensky uh, the CDC spokesperson or director, say, no, indeed, children, it's the fifth largest cause of death in the last two years for children has been COVID. 
No, that's nonsense. That's nonsense, right? I, a, I mean, you know, the so, FDA just approved vaccination of six-month-old to five-year-olds. Five yeah. yeah, just under five. They already had it for, for five and older. And I've looked at the, the, the actual document that was given to the FDA yeah, by Pfizer. Yeah, I'd like Pfizer. to talk about that, yeah. Yeah, and that study sets a new bar on how low you can actually have data to get approval of these drugs. And it's, it's a dangerous precedent in part because what they're trying to do is to relate this study to the study that they had done on older children, the 5 to, um, to 12-year-olds. And, I mean, people would be shocked if, if they understood, for example, the number of, of participants that were vaccinated was about two-thirds of the participants and one-third was unvaccinated. And then what happened was, over the course of... The trial was designed to see if two doses would give protection to the children from getting COVID. But there are such low chances of being infected in the first place that in the end, there was only like um, one child that was in the vaccinated group. And remember, the the unvaccinated group was a third the size, or half the size of the vaccinated group, but they had two children. I mean, the difference was, was, was a matter of maybe, even if you adjust for the numbers, of four children between what would be seen as being efficacious, like a 75% reduction. Yeah, you reduced it from four children to one children. But, you know, originally in the study, they had closer to 4,000 children that were in the uh, vaccinated group and around 2,000 in the unvaccinated group. And two-thirds of them didn't get through the entire trial. And 97% of the cases of COVID, they didn't even look at. So what they found was they originally planned to look at two doses, and there was no statistical data to show any effect after two doses. So in the middle of the study, they went ahead and, and added a third dose. And the period of time for those participants was actually quite variable. Anything from just, a, you know, six weeks to 20 weeks, right? And then, they, and then they, they had that one window where they could actually see statistical data that would support it. But if you calculate what's called the absolute risk reduction, it was a fraction of a percent. What that means is, if you're vaccinating a large population, the reduction in the cases of COVID that you would expect in that group will be a fraction of a percent reduction. Right. Right. And, and that was also the number. I wanted you to talk about this too. So I might as well just highlight this uh, moment between relative and absolute risk reduction. Because right. mm. when the, the initial media um, and pharma campaign was, uh, we have this wonderful new vaccine, 95% right. effective. Uh, yeah. And that was relative risk reduction, right? That's correct. But the one value we should actually be looking for is absolute risk reduction, which was which about, about a percent. Yeah, just under a percent. Eight four. Yeah. Can Can you just explain that difference? Well, again, the same idea is you have to. An absolute risk reduction means that if you're in the population, what's your chances of reducing the chances that you will get COVID? And if your chances are already relatively low to begin with, in that time frame of six months, which would be how they calculated that, that period. So in that six months of those people, your, your risk is actually already fairly low. And then on top of that, you're comparing it to your placebo group. 
And the the risk reduction, like I say, it's a it's a fraction of a percent, point eight percent, as you point out. So that's what we would have expected this entire mass vaccination program to reduce the number of cases of COVID. So I'm not saying that the vaccination doesn't isn't justified under certain circumstances for those that are elderly, yes. that have comorbidities, uh, diabetes, uh, obesity was a big factor, uh, compromised immune systems, although if it's compromised, the vaccine is less likely to work anyways. But you know, for certain groups, even with the inherent risks associated, it may make sense. But for the vast majority of our population, no, the natural immunity would have been the better way to go. And some places like Sweden did this, and it worked out actually quite quite well for them. Um, the concern is that, well, if the vaccines at least give you some protection, then okay, for you know, $20 a person, you keep boosting them. Uh, by the way, it costs about a dollar to make. Um, but the thing is that if you're actually reducing your immunity and you're allowing the propagation of more strains of this virus then you actually are having more harm than actually good from it. I just want to ask a question that kind of brings the what we talked about early on about this love of neighbor and this kind of adage that we hear in scripture but we also right. hear from the government is that so you you throw these these numbers around and the attitude especially that I've heard from young people and you've probably seen this a lot on UBC campus is they go if it saves one life it's worth it. Yeah. Right? And I it's how do you I guess on a on a hum, on a human level decide like what's worth the risk to your own person versus somebody else? Maybe Jens you can speak to that as well because I I've heard that from young people, right? And going, well, if it saves one life out of out of 100,000, then it'll have been worth it if I get vaccinated. No, actually, the numbers don't really work like that. A lot of people think so, but no. In fact, I've heard the other day that Thank God for vaccines. We've saved 20 million lives, you know, recently. I heard that too. Right. And, and those numbers are, are clearly unjustified. Y- you have to consider that a lot of the people that were vulnerable died actually quite early on in the pandemic. And, you know, they were the elderly. And it's very interesting. After the, the first wave and the second wave, which is we had most of our lethality in those vulnerable populations, by the time you got to around um, Christmas of 2020, there was already a decline in the number of deaths in the elderly. And interestingly, it preceded really the vaccinations. Mm-hmm. And, and so the vaccinations came in, and when you look carefully at the epidemiology data, you actually see spikes in increased numbers of cases of COVID in the elderly coincident with their vaccinations. And... So it turns out that the first week or two that you get vaccinated, you actually increase your chances of getting COVID. This data was, was, really, was, was really shown by um, Alberta Health, where they took people who had gotten COVID that were vaccinated, and they looked to see, well, when did they actually get the COVID? And it's relatively low risk the first day, and then it doubles the second day, and it continually rises up to seven days, plateaus for about up to nine days, and then declines, as you would expect with 
now production of antibodies that are going to give you some kind of protection. So you actually increase your chances in the first two weeks. And then, of course, what they do is when you're deciding, well, who's in the vaccinated group and who's in the unvaccinated group? And if you have, in BC, it's three weeks after your first shot, if you get COVID, you're considered unvaccinated. So they take all these extra cases and they throw them in with the unvaccinated and reduce the number of vaccinated. <laughs> so it looks even better, right? Well, you know, what is it? There's lies, damn lies in statistics. That, yes, And right. people aren't looking at the collateral damage either because it's like, yeah, we saved one life, but how many did we sacrifice well, with the way that we have responded to this? Masking children, the psychological damage, there's a spike in mental health issues, a, th- a what is it, 100 million people are starving in Africa as a lack of distribution of food? And meanwhile, for those in the church, we say, oh, we love the poor. Go get the jab, put on your mask, do this kind of thing. And uh, from the beginning, I'm going, hold on, we have to have a far more comprehensive view of the impact that we're having. And it's a travesty. Well, you know, you asked, how many did we save a life? And, well, we have to look at Statistics Canada for that. And we have to look at all-cause mortality. Uh, yes. Because everything that you've been saying is a reflection of all of these various measures we've taken. And when you look at all-cause mortality, once we started to actually... There's going to be in 2020 an increase from COVID deaths. So that's already factored in. But when you start to look at what happens after the um, vaccines are introduced the all-cause mortality actually has been rising. And we've now had, of course, this decline in, in deaths from COVID-19 because we have natural immunity in our population and, and some immunity from the vaccines. But, but the all-cause mortality has increased. So you have to say, well, where did that extra all-cause mortality that was not there in 2019, which is almost up to 25% higher rates of all-cause mortality than what we saw in 2019. 25%? 25%, getting approaching that. Yes, that's correct. Between 20 to 25%, depending on how you look at where the little bumps and the peeps are from month to month. So this just came out with Stats Canada data. I have that I can provide to you. That's incredible. Yeah, so, so did we save lives? I don't think we did. Mm. You know, we may have saved certain people's lives by applying it, but... When you look at all of the impacts on mental health, as you pointed out, yeah. and, and uh, just in terms of we're now seeing increased rates of people getting cancer and all these other diseases that, you know, the doctors have been kind of not really seeing their patients. I mean, on a, com- on a computer screen or maybe you know, in a Zoom or maybe on a telephone call, but they're not actually physically touching their patients anymore and they're getting you know tests but those tests aren't addressing certain types of conditions or you know surgeries have been delayed and i think the impacts of that and the psychological stress which reduces your immune system which protects you against other infectious diseases and cancer um that is where we're now seeing the burden so what what bewilders me about this is people like doug farrow have been writing almost from the beginning, and pointing out that these kind of collateral damages are going to happen and are beginning to happen, it's surely these messages have to have gotten through to the scientific community that seems to be in charge. But yet they turn a blind eye or well, a blind no, ear or um, deaf science, ear. Science is actually self-correcting, and, and scientists don't want to be wrong. 
And so we, but if somebody else is wrong as a scientist, we do like to point that out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what ends up happening is there's been really tens of thousands of publications on COVID-19 now. And many of them um, are actually showing these problems. I mean, early on, we all were told that the vaccine prevents transmission. And the reality is that was never tested yeah. in any clinical yeah. trial. Yeah. The end point was simply, do you reduce the number of symptomatic or even, even worse, the detection with a, a test, the PCR test, of an infection with the virus, and the test is notorious for actually giving a high rates of false positive, up to 90%, depending upon how you perform that test. So we, we have no actual placebo-controlled phase three data that shows that we reduce transmission, that we reduce hospitalization, that we reduce uh, ICU admissions, or even deaths. In fact, the interesting thing is if you look at the BC data, the most recent, 14% of the population is unvaccinated, and they account for 9% of the deaths from COVID in 2022. Okay? When you look at the people that are triple vaccinated, they, they, have, they represent actually about maybe 40, 45% of the population, and they have about 60, around 60% of the deaths from COVID-19. So lots of data that's really showing that you're actually at increased risks. Now, there may be some other explanations for this, mm. um, but certainly there's no clear data that shows that you are at increased risk of actually dying if you're unvaccinated from COVID-19 at this time. Now, Douglas Farrow has been uncharacteristically quiet so far, so I think we should uh, tee him up. Surely you're chomping at the bit a little bit, Douglas, after all the study that you've done. Is it- well, no, I've been, I've been appreciating this uh, this. Uh, <clears throat> quiet and professional unfolding of the of the situation which if our listening audience is also a thinking audience um, is sure to give them some serious pause it, it it's not difficult to understand the advantages to large pharmaceutical corporations um, uh, that this unfolding scenario has produced, it's very difficult to understand what the governments and regulatory agencies and the scientists who who, who work on this sort of thing. Um, well, maybe with the scientists, it, it, <laughs> I, one could see some advantages, but... It's very difficult to see how the government charged with care for the common good in, in matters of the regulation of, of, of medicine and control of disease, uh, what, what, they, what, what, is, what accounts for their behavior um, in this situation? What, what would you put it down to? And... Secondly, what I'd like to hear you say a bit more about the mood in the research 
community? What what accounts for the shift from, well, let's be careful about, let's not give this to to pregnant uh, women. Let's not, um, I'm not going to worry too much about the pregnant men, but let's not give it to, to, to women who are, you know, have, about to have a baby and let's not give it to the babies for sure. What accounts for the shift even in the medical community to being at, at, at least apathetic about this, if not actually in support of it, when it seems so contrary to the, the principles that, that we have expected to be operative in the medical community and the scientific community. So I, I, I realize you probably can't give us a complete uh, at least satisfactory or knowledgeable answer of those things, uh, but but I'd like to hear your view on it. Sure, I mean, I as I mentioned earlier, I think most of my colleagues are are trying to do the best they can, um, but there is a clear bias, and there is a lot of. Well, let me put it this way: there's a tremendous amount of money that's been available to support COVID research by the governments. And, and even by the pharmaceutical companies, but certain types of research. So, so for example, in our case with our company, we were trying to develop a, to determine the extent of natural immunity. We applied to many different granting agencies. We were we didn't even get past the letter of intent. So, so certain types of research, uh, for example, how to convince more people to get vaccinated to to deal with vaccine hesitancy. Uh, you know, developing nudging techniques so that you I saw the shirt proposals. <laughs> oh, yeah, unbelievable! It's incredible. So, so people follow the money. You know, scientists are like everybody else. We we we're trying to to practice our craft, and you know, we're curiosity driven. But we have to sometimes go where we can get support. And so, there's been a really a a strong incentive for a lot of scientists to go down some of these other routes. And, uh, I mean, I'm part of the, not just the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, but I participate in things like Can COVID. And so we have seminars every other week where we learn what scientists are doing in, in the network of, these are university professors, for example, and hospitals. And it's the, the message comes across really clear within there that, in fact, it's, it's you know, the vaccines are really important, and we have to convince people. It's like the directive is coming from very up high in government itself that you know this is what we're going to support. And so, if you have a contrary view, we're not interested in hearing about that. And so this is this is very problematic. But the way the scientific literature works is yeah. that you know these publications come out that present a a contrarian view based on the data. I think, you know, the integrity of scientists is that we try to publish what we find, but it's even those documents, it's very interesting. They have to almost add statements in it that even though their own data is suggesting that maybe this vaccines aren't working so well, that maybe we need to think about it, they still will end with a concluding statement. Well, you know, we still think it's very important to have vaccination. So it's kind of like the, the can't believe that the data is showing them that this is harmful. 
it's ineffective, and yet they still go ahead and uh, add these statements. They don't. They don't actually looking at their own data. Now, there's the the the, the harm from these vaccines is really clear, because if you look at the United States, they had a, a vaccine injury reporting system, VARES. It's been, it's been operational for 30 years, and over 70 different vaccines have been given this scrutiny where if anybody reports an adverse effect, it goes into this system. Usually it's doctors that actually provide this information. I think as last I heard about 1.2 million adverse reports associated with the COVID vaccines, of which in the United States alone, I believe it's over 16,000 deaths associated with the vaccines. These three vaccines, they don't have the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. They're just the AstraZeneca and the uh, Moderna and Pfizer. And so if you take all of the reports of vaccine injury for the last 31 years put together, excluding these three COVID vaccines, the COVID vaccines have far more reports than all the rest put together. So this is like a huge red flag. Recently, uh, it was disclosed that the FDA actually ignored their own system, their own VARES system for vaccine injury reporting, uh, and they admitted that they never took it into account in their deliberations and whether or not to vaccinate, like I say, even even you know six month old babies. It's it's clearly very disconcerting. So, so where where I was, uh, I agree, and and I suppose where this takes us is to the question of trust. Um, when I came to McGill University a couple of decades or more ago, uh, I had a certain trust that that colleagues in medicine, and of course, that's a big thing at McGill. Um, you know, we're working, um, I mean, obviously, like any science, we, you know, there's trial and error, and, and there are plenty of error on the way to discovery of, of how things actually are. But you assume good faith um, when you discover in these last couple of years that the university has been pushing so hard for people to be frightened enough of of this virus to not have classes and then eventually to you know all all the rules the the backs passes and and so forth um only to learn that the university is now in partnership with moderna <laughs> Um, which stands to make so much money if this process continues in spite of the kind of caution, well, not caution, the, the, the devastating critique you've just quietly provided to us. You begin to lose trust in the administration, but you, know, you also lose trust in your scientific colleagues who, who accept all that money. It gets recycled. So, so the grants come from the drug company. I don't need to tell you this. <laughs> the, the grants come from the drug companies and the people work on what, what um, is going to produce more grants and keep, keep the, you know, the, the, the beast um, satisfied, its appetite. 
so you lose trust in that. But ordinary people are are losing trust in their in their own physicians. So I know people who are seriously vaccine damaged, and I, I was I was <laughs> noticing the new paper from the uh, British Medical Journal. Uh, editor Peter Doshi and some of his right. colleagues that 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 came out last week saying that that uh, according to their study of Pfizer and Moderna vaccine trials, the vaccines are more likely to put you in hospital with an adverse event than to keep you out of it by protecting you from a severe uh, reaction to COVID. Um, but some, th- this was actually evident from a long time ago. We've seen the dumps in BC of the messages sent back and forth to uh, Bonnie Henry and her and her crew. You know, there were there were serious signs in not only in VARES, but people behind the scenes writing saying, "Look, there are problems here." But whether it's your own physician who won't talk to you about this. Or the government figures who keep on saying safe and effective, safe and effective, when it's manifestly clear now that they didn't know that it was safe and effective, they quite quickly knew that it wasn't safe and effective, and m- m- uh, studies are, are demonstrating that in undeniable terms. The, the loss of confidence that people, I think, are developing at all those levels who are these scientists that we held on such a pedestal? What is this government doing that says it's got our interests at heart, but in fact is obscuring from us what is really happening? And why won't my own doctor talk to me or even see me? Yeah, I don't have that problem personally, by the way. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking for, yeah, yeah. for others here. No, your, your point's well taken. Firstly, I would, would say that there's actually a lot of scientists that are concerned about the situation. Uh, for example, the Great Barrington Accord, even a year ago, had over 50,000 scientists that basically thought that the natural immunity was the best way to deal with this pandemic, except for those individuals that were the highest risk. And in terms of the doctors, well, you know, the doctors, they're under tremendous pressure. In fact, with the College of Physicians and Surgeons, not just in BC, but across the country in the various provinces. And, for example, you can't, you can't even, you cannot be guilty of vaccine hesitancy in talking to your patients. Uh, That could cause you to lose your license. You cannot prescribe ivermectin, even though normally a doctor can prescribe any off-label drug that's already been safety tested, certainly something like ivermectin. In fact, um, the Ministry of Health basically says that they would rather that people were being prescribed ivermectin to treat COVID-19 than to just have them go out and get horse paste that has ivermectin and taking doses that might be a little toxic. But in fact, no one's died, even now, of an overdose of ivermectin. So, so I think there are pressures on doctors, and they're scared, mm-hmm. and and, and they they don't know which patient is going to report them as necessarily, you know, not going with the plan from from the government. And uh, some of those doctors they've since retired because they don't want to be in that situation. 
And now we have this devastating situation where we, we don't have enough general practitioners for the general public. In BC, we have 900,000 people that don't have a family doctor of about 5.3 million in our province. And this is across the country, and it's only going to get worse. The, the, only, the only reason that we were continually offered for the lockdowns and, and for the mandates is that we had to ease the burden on the hospitals and uh, I followed that from early on too, and realized that 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 this was being um, very much misrepresented. Uh, the the feature you you mentioned earlier about counting people as unvaccinated um, when they should have been counted as vaccinated is is one aspect of the misrepresentation. Another is uh, the fact that in flu season the hospitals operate near capacity or slightly over capacity anyways. That's correct. Uh, and then a further aspect of it is that the policies we've followed have actually reduced the, um, the number of staff available, not, not, not just personal physicians, but nurses and even uh, operating room, uh, operating theater staff and so forth, so that Hospitals are said to be full only because they can't staff to capacity uh, as, as they used to do. Lots of layers to this problem. But again, it, 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 it begs the question, why are the governments two years on still pursuing this kind of policy? And, and not to put it all on the government or on a particular subset of, of civil servants even, but back to where we started with, the, with Ed's description of the situation in the churches, why people are losing trust also in religious leaders yeah. because they, they too will not speak up about these things, even though they have in a certain sense less to lose than the doctor who might get struck off. That we've actually looked at the Canadian COVID Care Alliance at hospitalization. You know how full were the hospitals in Ontario? We've actually published this stuff. It never got to full capacity during the pandemic. In BC, in in May, we actually had about five thousand beds. We closed half of them, so that those people had to go to their homes, postpone surgeries and the like. And I think at the peak, we had maybe about just under 400 people that were in hospital in the whole province. So, so as a result, our hospitals were actually pretty dead. You know, they were, they were largely empty. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of these staff didn't know what to do with themselves. This was amazing. And then your, your point about the... Um, so you know, these frontline workers, the nurses, the doctors, that, that without any vaccines around, you know, they're putting their time and energy into treating when we were at our peaks. And then a year later, they're told that because they're not vaccinated, we don't need you anymore. So thousands in BC, thousands in Ontario and the other provinces were let go. You know, they were heroes one year and the next year they were dispensable. (laughs) And then we're hiring people coming from other countries now 
to fill in those roles. And, you know, we have people that are at home receiving home care from those nurses from the Philippines and elsewhere, where now it's much more lucrative for them to get a job in the hospitals so because they're available. So now we don't have people to take care of the people in their homes, which means we have to import more people from out of the country to fill those roles. It It, it seems so poorly conceived how all this is actually unfolded. That seems so generous to me. I love the way you put that. But the the level of inscrutability in all of this for me makes it unsurprising that people are connecting this to Dr. Evil. I mean, Klaus Schwab, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) What is going on? That's what I wonder sometimes. And I'm not surprised people are connecting dots that may or may not be connectable. But it seems to me that we are in the midst of some very strange phenomena. Yeah, how far can you, you know, attribute this to systemic incompetency and the lack of typical lack of bureaucracies and so on? And to what extent do you just want to seek a different explanation? That's my wow. question. Because I mean, even what you said, what Steve said about science, certainly true, it's self-correcting and so on. But that takes time. And where's the government officials that would say first? First motto is cause no harm. So let's have the caution in place to wait until we know, you know, whether this is safe or not. But we're not. We haven't done that. So you know, say uh, cognitive dissonance is a pump of air into the brain. There's a point where your head explodes, and I think we've had so much cognitive dissonance that uh, it's hard to make heads or tails of it. And um, you know, reading Doug Farrow's pieces indeed increases that because you're really good at pointing out where there's inconsistencies that are bewildering. And maybe that's what, you know, so I know we have to come to an end with this episode, I think. Do we? Um, <laughs> this is good. Well, we, gonna, we, are we I'm ever going to have I'm going to start us toward the end so I, that we, we haven't can... gotten to ask him about Fauci yet. Yeah. We, well, we I don't won't. want to ask that. We won't. I, no. Unless you want us to. talk about Fauci. Unless you want us to. Um but I do want to want to. He's go against masking originally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he wasn't he? Yeah. Wasn't the only yeah. one? That's right. There uh, was Bonnie the Henry one. was flip flop Fauci. So I, I have a constant, um, you know, I keep a constant eye on Europe, on Germany, on France, and so on and so forth because of of uh, my origin there in Germany and all the same things that we've said here of hospitals never being overwhelmed uh, are true. The the reversal on masks, the same thing. You still have you can still watch in the the video cache. You can still watch the YouTube clips of. You know, uh, Christian Drosten, who was our Fauci in Germany, was saying this is this is just a respiratory virus, nothing to worry about. Um, masks are going to be no good. Let's not panic. That lasted for about two weeks, and then it was a complete reversal. If you had thrown a switch, um, so those are all questions that one wants to have answered. Um, and going back to the the uh, children's vaccination, um, if I want to translate what Steve has told us um, in his, in his very scientific way, is we basically have. Uh, an authorization, emergency authorization of an experimental vaccine with unknown long-term side effects for children who have no emergency whatsoever from this from this disease. So you want to go like, what gives? Like, why is this yeah. happening? Well, even the FDA isn't listening to their own advisors because when we had it put to them whether or not there should be a third shot of the vaccine. They had 18 people in the panel of experts, and 16 out of the 18 argued against the third shot for the average American. And then in the end, there was discussion, and they then kind of approved it for people who are over 70, 
And the next thing you know, a week later, FDA approves it for everybody that was over 18. So, so they're not even listening to their experts. So, so my question is, of course, always why? Why are they not listening? What is it they are trying to achieve? And of course, there's been a lot of talk about regulatory capture and about financial kickbacks, as well as about larger political uh, agendas, including Agenda 2030 and population reduction and so forth. These, the why question is not easy to answer definitively, but you've you've raised uh, today a, a, a worrisome prospect that isn't political but medical. If these um, if these new genetic vaccines, as you called them, um, introduce elements into our bodies which are not easily got rid of, aren't aren't uh, all it are, don't follow the normal processes of of clearing. Um, what is going to be the cumulative effect of that? And we've heard a lot lately about. Um, sudden adult death syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, some of us know people who have suffered uh, this uh, unfortunate end. Um, and it's not just adults, it's children, it's, it's young people. Yes. Um, so if we bracket out the, the, the attempt to, to answer the big questions about why are people doing this? Well, I'm... Um, why are they not responding even to the science that they have? And ask, what should we do? Right. We who have, from the science, learned that there are long-term dangers here. We don't know how serious they are, but we know that they're fatal for some people. And they could be serious for a lot of people. I mean, a mandate for a young person to take a vaccine, let's say a young woman, to, that might well render them infertile at some point if they don't get on fairly quickly with being fertile, but not too quickly because we know that their fertility drops immediately afterwards. Um, this, the people have to take responsibility. I, I've talked about my puzzlement about the scientific profession, the medical profession, the university bureaucracies, the political uh, 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 bureaucrats and the political leaders, public health people, the churches. But what do we now do? If they come back to us in the autumn and there are lots of noises about this, saying, oh, well, you know, you're going to have to take, you know, another shot. Or there's some new threat that we'll give you, we'll, we'll, we'll experiment further with this mRNA stuff in the face of some new threat. What do we ordinary people do? Because we can't, we can't afford to leave, you know, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, <laughs> uh, shame on you. We can't afford to leave these decisions about our lives in the hands of people who have not demonstrated their trustworthiness. I think, I think more and more people are starting to feel that. So what do we do if faced in the autumn with the same kind of thing we were faced with last autumn? Do you have any good advice on that? Yeah. I realize that's a delicate question. But. Well, well, I would, 
preface this by saying that I don't think there's a master plan here. I think there are many different competing organizations that take advantage of the chaos to push their own agendas. And maybe the World Economic Forum is, is one of them. I really don't see this as a an effective means to reduce the world's population because uh, most of the countries that are doing the vaccination are already at low low birth rates anyways that are probably... Yeah, negative birth rates, yeah. So that makes no sense. Um, I do... I've talked about, like, the fertility issue, but I'm actually much more concerned also about the the uh, introduction of more autoimmune diseases. Because when you have a mechanism with these vaccines that you're attacking your own body tissues, that's the recipe for all kinds of autoimmune diseases. Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, lupus, arthritis, colitis. And we don't know how much of a problem this is going to be until a few years goes down the road. But in answer to your specific question, what can we do? I think it's actually, it's it's everybody. There are some politicians that, that do see the problem, and they need to be supported. And there are news outlets that recognize the problem, and they need to be supported. And so you have, within all the various layers, um, the health profession as well, um, where there are dissidents and they need to have the public recognize that you know their their efforts are being acknowledged and that that message spreads but really i think the it's it's like the churches i think play an extremely important role it's a very social organization people talk to each other and i think you know this is where you really need to spread the information I think you want to make sure it's accurate and you want to make sure that, you know, it doesn't have like biases. People want to get the straight goods, but if they get the, 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 the truth, then I think they can be empowered to make the right decisions themselves, but they need, they need to have the truth. And you're absolutely right. The public faith in, in government, in, in the healthcare profession in the media, in the courts, these are all being undermined at this time. And and COVID-19, in a way, has been probably a bit of a gift because it's not really that severe when you really put it into bigger context of all the other things that are going on. And if it's re- revealed basically um, deficiencies in our systems, then it's a wake-up call, and it's an opportunity mm. to try to do something before it gets too beyond control. So I think people just have to be more active. That's wonderful. And there, there's a coercive element that we see as well. So, for example, my daughter has gone on a mission trip recently. She already had two shots, and we said, there's no way, given some of the stuff that's coming out, that you are getting that third or the booster. Mm-hmm. And uh, in order to fly into the states and get into the country where she was going they forced her she was not allowed to go on the trip unless she got the booster and so i said to her at the time i don't want you to get this thing but it's your decision she's almost 19 years old and she said dad people in the church have raised helped me raise twenty thousand dollars to go 
it was the day before she was to leave that she found out. She said, now it's up to the Lord because I feel like I have no choice. And so she's really entrusting her future and her fertility to to God. And it was kind of touching because she said, and I guess if I can't, I said, well, what if you can't have kids? And her response was, I guess I'll adopt. Yeah. Which I thought was a beautiful thing. But at the same time, there are going to be people, worst case scenario, who are finding, goodness gracious me, my dream of being a mom and or uh, a parent is now evaporated. So there can be some pretty harsh consequences down the road. Yeah, no, the coercion that's been done, it's been so unjustified based on the data that's available. I mean, flying on airplanes, the reality is, first, they're, they're low zones, as it turns out, of actual transmission. Mm. And secondly, someone who's been vaccinated, they're just as likely to actually get sick and transmit as someone who's been unvaccinated. And probably more so now, because... Again, we seem to increase the risks of getting COVID when you're vaccinated. And I know this sounds like pretty incredible, but this is what the data is showing us now. It's a totally different situation from even like two years ago with the, with the Wuhan strain originally. Now with Omicron, the risk is so low. People don't get that sick in general with this version. And yes, there's going to be more COVID, you know, um, related uh, viruses, uh, variations of Omicron. But the reality is this pandemic has really um, proceeded as you would expect, where you get a more infectious variant that gets selected, and it's also more benign. Because if it was more lethal, people would know they're sick and it wouldn't spread as quickly. You know, like there's a lot of concern about monkeypox right now. But monkeypox is quite evident if you have it. Uh, no one's, to my knowledge, has died from this monkeypox. Um, it's kind of like cowpox. It, it's, uh, it, it might make you sick, but it's not usually very lethal. It seems to be restricted to primarily people that are homosexual men. Um, so they don't really talk about that. But that's what it what is happening. <laughs> And the thought is, well, if it, if it builds up in that population, eventually heterosexual people will be affected. And that might be so, but I, I don't think that that's been blown out of proportion considering how long it's been around. But these other variants of SARS-CoV-2, they will come. And if we keep on doing these vaccination programs, we're just creating a, more of a breeding ground for more variants. Okay, last chance to ask Steve a question here. Otherwise, we should wrap it up. As rich and as much, I'd love to go on learning a ton. Thank you for being with us. So I can just... Last chance. Um, I'll let, uh, but so what is clear from all your answers, Stephen, is that the vaccine mandates are nonsense. Yes. That the way forward with this really non-pandemic, if we take as a definition of a pandemic the classic definition of a pandemic, which means it affects all people across all age groups, right, with with uh, outrageous death rates and so on. We've never had that. So the way forward with this, I'm going to say non-pandemic, would not be mass vaccination, but would be um, what the Barrington Declaration folks have said all along. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. That's, that's, focus yeah. protection. Yeah, focus yes. protection. Let herd immunity build. And, uh, yeah. And wait for the 
better vaccines, and maybe Novavax or Medicago might be them. They're approved now. But there was hundreds of, uh, at least 200 vaccines in development for SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and, you know, we've focused on, for some strange reason, the most, the most um, novel, <laughs> untested <laughs> vaccine. <clears throat> now, normally it takes about uh, a dozen years to test a vaccine properly. And would not the s- nine months. And would not the same uh, wisdom that we've had with uh, something like the flu, even if it's not, <coughs> even if it's not directly comparable, apply? Which is not everybody needs to get vaccinated. Right. Right, so there are certain age groups uh, that you wouldn't recommend the vaccine no. for. Yeah, no. This this leads then to my final question to you. Um, suppose suppose we are faced um, with another so-called pandemic, but one that is not as um, It doesn't doesn't require the the loose definition that we now work with, <laughs> the yogurt inclusive de- definition um, for a vaccine. It has it has its analog in the definition for a pandemic, which which is just transmissibility rather than than severity. Suppose that we're faced with a, a new one in the near future that is obviously severe. It doesn't need to be. Um, cranked up by propaganda, it, 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 it's obviously severe. My question is this, do you think we've learned enough from the mistakes made with this, as I see it, highly unethical and dangerous mass experiment with, with the new, Particularly mRNA, but 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 several of the new vaccine types. Do you think we've learned enough from it, both scientifically, medically, um, and morally, ethically, that in a more severe situation we should trust ourselves to to some instant vaccine that has not been actually tested carefully? Um, again, under the pressure, now a more serious pressure. Or should we say no? We, we, we'll, like generations past, we'll, we'll take our chances with this. We know some people will die, but it's better than continuing this experiment where we are all the guinea pigs and we've no idea what the long-term outcome will be. Well, I think the situation with SARS-CoV-2 is quite unique because it's a very novel approach we've tried. The virus isn't really that lethal for most people. I mean, if you're a child, it's like I say, it's like one in uh, maybe one in a hundred thousand that you would die from it. So actually probably less than that. It's less, it's about tenfold less than that. But, but, but the thing is, it depends on the context. So what I'm saying is, how much do we know about this new virus? Would we be using more traditional techniques that are tried and true? You know, how, how, how lethal is it really going to be? I don't think that such viruses really come about so quickly. Uh, there's probably over 300,000 plus different viruses that are in our environment that it will affect mammals in general. And we know, certainly with SARS-CoV-2, 
you know, you can find this in, in wild deer and in minks and, and ferrets and cats and bats and, and pangolins. I mean, a lot of these viruses can move from one species to another, and usually they're pretty benign in those other species. A good virus, when I say good, one that, that is likely to spread, uh, is one that actually is, it doesn't hurt the host as minimally as possible and it is in the environment. So the, the chances that a, we have about 200,000, sorry, about 200 different pathogenic viruses that really affect people out of all, all that 300,000. So, I mean, it, it may pop up something, but I think at the same token, we, we have such advanced techniques today that once you can isolate that virus, you can learn everything about it very quickly. And just as we've done at Conexus, develop a test right away that's very specific. Those could, in fact, be immunogens to make antibodies in people and vaccines. I think the good news is we have technology that exists today that we can deal with it very quickly. But at the same time, we shouldn't ignore the hypothetical concerns that we have knowing about how viruses work and our immune systems work. We should have a bit more faith also in our own capacities. Excellent. Um, two questions, but quick ones. Um, how would we classify viruses? Are they, um, you know, the normal def- uh, distinction, flora, fauna, are they an animal? Are they, are they, I guess they're a living organism of some sort, but do we have any, any, any other way of classifying well, the, these the, things? The definition of life itself is quite, has certain properties and we have a lot of parasites that will not exist very long outside the body mm-hmm. and so a virus is essentially a parasite uh-huh. and and so it but when you look at the evolution of viruses some of these may have evolved from unicellular organisms that lost parts mm-hmm. and then they get very efficient mm-hmm. to be able to use a host mm-hmm. and then there's other ones where we have jumping genes and these are very simple in structure, and, and all they're trying to do is to replicate more of themselves, and it passes on. So we don't really like to call viruses living things, but, but more, more kind of devolved, right. maybe live from living organisms. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. I've and got a finally, couple of choice ways of describing them. <laughs> <laughs> um, you have chosen not to be vaccinated. That's right. And um, a little bit about what brought you to that decision. And um, for our listeners, if you choose not to get vaccinated, uh, what do you recommend uh, to maximize their their uh, resistance to catching this disease? Or is it better to go ahead and get it now that you've got a milder form and whatnot? So, right. I mean, this is probably the best vaccine is, is actually the virus itself, the Omicron state. There's always going to be people that that they need to do something else. The good news is that there are many medications that are available from the ivermectin, fluvoxamine, hydroxychloroquine, quercetin, zinc. These seem to be showing to be effective. And you also got the new drugs that are coming, like the Paxlovid, and mm. that are, are more traditional. They're new, a little more expensive, um, but they may also work. We've learned so much more about this virus and its replication that certain things like you know when you by the time you get to the hospital it's not so much the virus that's the problem anymore it's your immune system 
is all screwed up and it's overactive. And so taking certain drugs like dexamethasone can kind of reduce that inflammation. You know, when we when we intubate people and we're forcing air down their throats, you know, we also have to expire. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so that can be problematic. Mm-hmm. And then some of the uh other drugs that have been used, it's it's um not clear that they're actually that effective. But I think there are so many different strategies. And then mm-hmm. if you're healthy, Doing the things, you know, getting that vitamin D, exercising, um, b- reducing stress, getting your sleep, you know, losing weight if you're obese. I mean, there are so many things that you can you can do. I think the main thing is, I think most people should just live life as normal as they can. Great. Any more? That's it. We're done. Stephen, thank you so much for being with us today. Douglas, also, thank you to you for joining in. It's uh, past dinner time for you, so thanks for that. And uh, Jens, Ivan, Curtis, thank you also. And to our listeners, until next time. <laughs>